I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more. And, you know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai? Yeah. So it's the capital of the UAE. He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. No, no, just talking to you has uh, helped, uh, helped get my thinking going. left college for the Navy to join the SEAL teams. And that was one of the biggest eye-opening lessons in my life. Successful entrepreneurs learn to look at failure in a completely different light. If you don't know how to get back up and constantly move forward, then you're not going to be in business long. My name is Eli Crane, and I'm the founder and CEO of Bottle Breacher. We are a veteran-owned, made-in-the-USA brand operating out of Tucson, Arizona. I started this company in a one-car garage in San Diego, California with my wife, Jen, who's also still my partner. We specialize in personalized man gifts and barware. Some of your audience might have seen us on the ABC hit television show Shark Tank in 2014 on the Veterans Day special. When we went on the show, we had about five employees, and now we have between 35 and 45, depending on the time of year. Basically, our goal is to build the biggest, baddest, made-in-the-USA, veteran-owned brand in the world. And it's pretty cool because this last year, Forbes actually ranked us as the 13th in the top 25 military or better known companies in the United States. So we're getting close and we're halfway there, but we still got a lot of work to do. And so we're excited about the future. And so are you still in San Diego now? No, we're actually operating out of Tucson, Arizona. And what got you to move there? Well, I was exiting the Navy and I was getting out of the military and my wife is actually from Tucson. And a lot of people that are in small business in California know that there's a lot of regulation in California. That's why a lot of small businesses are flocking out of there in droves. And so we were looking for a less regulated climate to start our small business and Arizona was a good fit. So you kind of hit on what you do today and kind of where you started from the beginning there. But how about before you started the company? How about like backtrack into getting out of high school and kind of your quick journey from there to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. There was nothing quick about my journey. Mm -hmm. It was filled with a lot of adversity and also a lot of failure. And I think this is something that needs to be talked about, you know, routinely and often with the entrepreneurship crowd. I think that failure is probably the biggest lesson and that's where most of the gold, you know, in life really lies. And I think that's what separates a lot of successful entrepreneurs from those that aren't successful is that successful entrepreneurs learn to look at failure in a, a completely different light. We don't look at it as something bad and something that we need to stay away from. We look at it as just a cause of doing business and we look at it I and mean, we actually 
welcome it because we know that that's where we're really going to find the real lessons and figure out what doesn't work and what does work. And so as a matter of fact, when I was getting out of high school, I barely graduated from high school because honestly, I really didn't care about what was going on. My family was getting blown up at the time. My parents were going through a really rough divorce. And I honestly thought that football was going to be my ticket out. And I found out the hard way that I wasn't good enough to really play anywhere. So I started doing a lot of searching, took a lot of side jobs. And I really wanted to go into the military because from the time I was a little boy, I had a, you know, a heart to serve and I love this country and I wanted to serve this country. And so pretty much everybody in my circle that I saw as an advisor advised me to go into, if I was going to go into the military, to go in as an officer. And so they all told me that I needed to go to college. So I started taking classes in criminal justice at Arizona Western College in Yuma, Arizona. And then after I finished my associates there, I transferred to the University of Arizona. And I really liked studying criminology, but they didn't have a, that major at the University of Arizona. And so I would have had to get put into the business college, which I applied for and didn't even get into, as ironic as that is. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking classes in sociology because I found that it was the easiest path to me getting a degree. And the military really didn't care what my degree was in. They just wanted to know that I could stick it out for four years. And so started studying sociology and then 9-11 happened at the start of my senior year. And I actually left college for the Navy the very next week to join the SEAL teams. And unfortunately, you don't just join the SEAL teams. You have to try out. And it's it's the most rigorous training in the Department of Defense. And so I actually uh, made a big mistake and I trained to the bare minimums. And as soon as I could do the bare minimums that were required and to just get into to get a shot to go to SEAL training, I actually applied and went down there and joined. And, you know, that's been a good lesson for me in, you know, in failure because it didn't work out for me. I actually went to SEAL training. I actually made it through the toughest part of SEAL training, which is called Hell Week. It's actually uh, front loaded into week four. And it's basically five and a half days of staying awake the whole time and just getting your butt kicked as you're cold, wet and miserable and made it through that week. But a week and a half later, I was dropped from training. I got a performance drop. And so they sent me out to the Navy for two and a half years. And that was one of the biggest eye-opening lessons in my life. And it's one that I always cherish just because when you go into something that's that big and that intense with, you know, kind of a half-assed mentality, those are you usually get half-assed results or you usually fail. And it's been so valuable for me moving on just to remember the pain and having to take ownership of that failure because it was 100% my fault. And so it's been really good for me moving into other things. And I went out to a ship for two and a half years. And then I got an opportunity to come back to SEAL training in 2004, made it straight through with class 256. And in mid 2005, I became a Navy SEAL and I spent nine years as a SEAL. And in my last two years in the Navy, I started this company, Bottle Breacher, in that one car garage in San Diego while I was an instructor. And I don't have a fancy MBA. I don't even have a business degree. But what I do have is, in my opinion, a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks. And I think that's the most important thing that you can have as an entrepreneur is just having a PhD and being resilient because as an entrepreneur, you will get knocked down every single day. You will run into problem after problem after problem. And if you don't know how to get back up and constantly move forward, then you're not going to be in business long. Yeah. Well, I mean, talking about the transition when you started the company, when you're still in the Navy, what kind of inspired you or made you want to end up doing that? Well, it was my wife and two little girls that inspired me to do that. Honestly, if I didn't have a family at the time, I probably would have got out of the Navy 
taken a breath and traveled around Europe for, you know, six months or a year, but that wasn't in the cards for me because I had responsibilities and I had mouths to feed and bills to pay. So I was doing whatever I could to take care of my family. And that kind of looked like, and this is important to talk about too, just so the entrepreneurs that are listening, you know, to this podcast, understand the sacrifice that it's going to take. You know, I was working a full-time job in the Navy, if you could even call it a job, is way more of an intense career in the Navy where I would instruct other SEALs, you know, all day long and sometimes late into the night. And then I would come home, you know, I would help my wife as much as I could with the kids. And then um, I would go out into the garage late at night, early into the morning and fulfill all the orders for today, making all the bottle breachers. And my wife, she would go to the computer and handle customer service, marketing and accounting. So and we did this for two years. There were no weekends. There were no summer vacations. I mean, we busted our asses for two years to stand this thing up. And even at that point, it got crazier because at that point we went on Shark Tank. And that sacrifice is so important. And it's also, you know, we also grew this business organically, which is something I love to talk about just because I feel it's so, if you're able to do it, some companies aren't able to do it, but if you're able to do it, I think it's so important that you try and grow as organic as possible for as long as possible, just for many reasons. One, because it you have to learn the business from the ground up. Nobody's pumping capital into you. Nobody's pumping capital into you. And it, you know, it also, if we know that the biggest enemy that we have usually is running out of cash, and that's why businesses fail every single day more commonly than any other reason, growing organically pretty much eliminates that because if you can't afford something, if you don't have the money in your business account to afford something, you don't buy it. It's just that simple. And I think a lot of people get overstretched and I think they buy way more than they can take on and way more than they can afford. And I also think they try and grow way too fast. So, you know, we love talking about organic growth and also the sacrifice that it's going to take to uh, get there. Sure. Well, um, yeah, before we jump into like the organic growth and uh, Shark Tank, how did you even come up with the idea at first? Right. So we came up with the idea in 2009. My little brother is a Marine Corps helicopter pilot, and he brought me back a really generic 50 caliber bottle opener overseas. And I love this thing. I thought it was one of the coolest things that I'd ever seen. And so did a lot of my buddies that came over to, you know, have beers and hang out with me. And they always asked, hey, where can I get one of these things? And my answer was always, I don't know. You know, I've never seen them in the States and neither had they. So um, a couple of years later, after using that and continually getting the same response and reaction from people, I thought, you know, I think I can take this really cool thing and make it a lot better. So I, I was actually driving home from Los Angeles when I had the epiphany to do this. And I got home and I went straight to the garage. I spray painted this thing black. I found a Punisher sticker online that happened to be the uh, our platoon logo at SEAL Team 3. And I put it on the 50 caliber bottle opener. And then I took some hand polish and I polished the tip up. Well, the next day I took it to work with me and I saw the reaction from my buddies. And they were like, dude, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I want you to make me several of them for every guy in my family for Christmas. And it was at that point that I saw their reaction and that they were willing to buy them off me. And that's when I knew that, hey, there might be something here. So I started buying dummy rounds online and taking a Dremel tool and cutting them myself. And then I would spray prime them, spray paint them, put stickers on them. And when I look back at the original ones, you know, they look like crap. But the bottom line is that my buddies were buying them. And then when I asked Jen if she could help me sell them online, she said, yeah, I think we can do it. So she set us up an Etsy store. We started selling them online. And we were able to get proof of concept really quickly, which is so important. And I think that's one that a lot of entrepreneurs screw up big time. You know, they get way in over their head before they ever have a proof of concept. So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. 
ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend 4,900 bucks. For Vistage, you're paying $18,810 for your first year. And for YPO, you're shoveling out $7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than 30 bucks a month compared to those other guys that cost 4,900 bucks, $18,810 and $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. And so for so people who are just listening to audio, because it's very easy once you're Googling to, to look at it. Can you tell us just, obviously these are kind of used for beer bottles and where you're cutting these holes out so they can get a visual idea? Yeah. So basically we started with a 50 caliber round and then I would cut into it with the Dremel tool. I would actually take a tape measure and I would tape out the and draw with a Sharpie the cut on there before I would cut it with a Dremel tool. And I think I did the first 500 that way. And all it really had to do was open a beer bottle. Right. And after that, I got really high speed and I found out that the broom handle in my backyard actually fit perfectly over a 50 caliber round. So I cut off about a three inch portion of the broom handle and I made our first fixture. Mm -hmm. When I did it with the tape measuring, it took me about seven minutes on each one to draw my patent design on there before I'd cut it with the Dremel tool. And after building our first fixture out of the broom, it took me about you know 10 seconds to draw it on there. And so that's a perfect example of organic growth and how a lot of the time you might have something you know in your kitchen drawer or in your backyard that can save you all the time in the world where you don't have to spend a ton of money. You don't have to get CAD drawings. You just have to be resilient and you have to be a little bit creative. Well, yeah. Well, so let's talk about kind of that time between your garage and up till Shark Tank. How many years had it been? And were there any moments then that, you know, thought you might not make it or got tired of it? And you're like, screw this. I don't want to do it anymore. Well, it was about a two year period from the time I started in the garage until we went on the Shark Tank. And during that point, there really weren't any of those moments where I didn't think that we were going to make it. Yeah. And for me, I had learned that I don't believe the saying that failure isn't an option, but when you're in my shoes and you would do anything in the world to make sure that your wife and your little kids, you know, have everything that they should have, there was no possibility of quitting. There were a couple of times post Shark Tank where I really, I did question a little bit if we would make it just because when we went on the show, we were making 130 bottle breachers on a good day. Mm -hmm. Post Shark Tank, we had to make um, about 1,500 to sometimes 2,000 on a good day. And, you know, it's one thing if you, you have a consumer product where somebody else does the fulfillment or manufacturing for you and you just call up China and you say, hey, I need another 500, you know, 5,000 units or 50,000 units or whatever it is. But we make most of these things in-house. So anybody that's ever done their own manufacturing can tell you that you don't just jump 10x in production 
the very next day. It just doesn't work that way. And we got a lot of heat for how long it was taking us to ramp up production. And rightfully so. I'll be the first to admit I'm not a patient person and I don't like waiting for anything. And a matter of fact, Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank was down here right after the Shark Tank to see what was going on and to see if he could offer any advice or help out and to film a Shark Tank update. Him and I were having a private conversation and he told me, you know, Eli, you guys are doing phenomenal as far as people love your product, but you better figure it out on the manufacturing side because you're about to miss your window. And what he meant by that was you have to strike when the iron is hot as an entrepreneur. And when there's a feeding frenzy for your product, you have to be able to deliver. And if you can't, a lot of times you're done. And because you've burned that bridge with those customers and they think, oh, well, so what? You got that taken care of. What makes me think the next time I come back to you, you're going to be ready you know, for my business and it's not going to take three months to get me my product. Yeah. That was also a great lesson learned. But there were days in there where I wondered if, man, I don't know if we're going to be able to get this taken care of. Right. If you go to YouTube and I type in Beyond the Tank with Bottle Breacher, it has a 15 minute video. It's great. So for any of our listeners and so we'll put those links in the show notes. But yeah, no, I think that it did a great job of kind of showing that hurdle that you had overcome. So I guess what, four and a half years in now. So can you tell us like from, I guess your experience, how about on the Shark Tank first before we talk about what happened afterwards? Right. So it was a phenomenal experience for us in regards to when we were in LA doing the pitch, you know, me and Jen were blown away when we actually walked out of the, uh, out of the set, you know, after getting a deal with Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary, we both kind of looked at each other like that's, that was a little bit too easy. Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, there was really nothing negative said at all. Mm -hmm. I think a little bit of it, it was a combination of many things, but I think one of it had to do with, I've noticed that usually when a military veteran goes on the shark tank, the sharks tend to be a little bit more respectful than they traditionally are. Mm -hmm. But that alone does not assure that you're going to get a deal or it's going to go easy for you because I've seen it go really poorly with other veterans. But like when Jen and I talked about the show afterwards and when we were pitching on the set, there was only really one negative thing brought up about the product and the business. And that was the political correctness aspect of it and whether or not people would shy away from this product because it was a bullet. And so Jen did a really good job answering that question. And I mean, the proof is in the sales. I mean, we're approaching about $13 million in sales of our products, you know, after the Shark Tank. And so even though that I know there are people that shy away from our products, you know, that's really not a huge problem for us. And so it was a great experience for us. You know, we got Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary to invest in in our company. And what we've really learned is the power from the Shark Tank is really in the show itself because, you know, four or five times a year, you'll have a rerun. Every time you have a rerun, you get a small spike in sales and then they do updates, which we've had two of which are also really good for exposure and really good for sales. So it's been a really great experience for us. And we've learned a lot. We've worked a lot with Kevin O'Leary and Alex Kienjev, his president of O'Leary Ventures. And they've been extremely helpful in guiding us through a lot of things that, you know, Jen and I just really didn't understand because we didn't have a tremendous amount of business experience under our belts. Well, could you tell us like what made you want to go on there and how you got on there? Did y'all just have a thought one day and kind of, it was hard to get on there? Yeah, it was very hard to get on there. I, I think they get about 40,000 applicants a year. And I think the reason it's so hard to get on there is because a lot of young entrepreneurs like myself, they're working out of their garage or their kitchens. They watch that show. And if you do any research on the Shark Tank, if I recall correctly, it's called the Shark Tank Effect. And even if you don't get a deal on the show, but you actually your episode airs, mm-hmm. most businesses on average grow by 700% the next year because they say it's like a $4 million commercial where 12 million people just saw your product. That's a huge deal in exposure. 
you know, and then people start Googling and looking up your product. And also a lot of us entrepreneurs, we're proud of where we're at and we know we've done a good job and we're excited about what we're doing, but there's still so many things that we don't understand because a lot of us have a day job doing something else and we don't have a bunch of, you know, experience in the business world. So a lot of us are looking for a shark or somebody that we feel like can help guide us down some of these paths that we're going to come down and also maybe help us open some doors that might take us four or five or 10 years to open by ourselves. And so I think that's one of the biggest reasons that I wanted to go on the show. I was looking for tactical partners. The money's good, but it's really not why I went on the show. I was looking for tactical partnerships. And I really thought that if we got that kind of exposure, it would blow us up. And so would you just watch that in your free time, the Shark Tank, and you one day you're like, I'm just get, it's worth me trying and filling out the application? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we would watch it in our free time like a lot of people do. Uh, It's an extremely popular show and it's also an extremely educational show. You can learn a lot about business just by watching that show and listening to the sharks talk about what they're looking for and why they don't like this or why they don't like that. Mm -hmm. And so we would watch it in our free time and we learned a lot from it. And then, you know, one day I decided, hey, I'm going to send in an application online. And I did that and I didn't hear anything back. Mm -hmm. And a couple months later, I found out there was an open casting call down the road from my house coming up in San Diego. And so I made sure that I got in line, I think around one in the morning. And I think I waited till one in the afternoon to pitch to a casting member. They said the first 500 people get a guaranteed opportunity to pitch to a casting member. So I made sure I was there. I made sure I had some great product and I made sure that I was ready to blow their socks off. And that's exactly what we did. Did you just keep practicing before you went in there or how'd that go? No, I really didn't. You know, I, I had some really great product and I knew where I was going to take my pitch. I mean, I know that when most people see a bottle breacher, especially at that time, most people had never seen anything like it and it was completely unique. It's a very sexy item. And I also knew that I was going to, with my backstory being a Navy SEAL, and being a veteran-owned, made-in-the-USA brand, I also knew that when I was able to pull up my Etsy stats on my phone and show the young lady I was pitching to, hey, I told her, hey, would you believe that you know, 10 minutes down the road from where we're at right now out of a one-car garage, I'm selling $80,000 worth of product a month, and we're projected to do close to a million dollars out of that one-car garage in our second year, and we're doing it all on our own? I knew it was, I knew it was a home run. Like I said, I was very confident that the only reason they wouldn't take us was because of, you know, political correct environment. Right. Well, let's talk about, I guess, uh, post Shark Tank. I know, I know you were talking about there's some hardships then. I mean, obviously about jumping from 130 a day to 2000 bottles a day or you know, bullets. Yep. What are some other obstacles that you've had to face post Shark Tank? Well, I think one of the biggest things Shark Tank's companies face following the show is you get that national exposure and everybody gets this bump right off the bat. But then companies really struggle after that initial surge. They really struggle to either maintain or they struggle to grow because no longer are you getting a $4 million commercial, you know, that six months after that or the year after that. And it's really tough to capitalize, grab those customers, bring them in, keep them, and then continue to offer them new stuff. And so that's been a struggle for most Shark Tank companies. We've actually been able to continue to grow and to continue to come up with several new products. You know, we just, within the last two months, we've launched two new products, the Bottle Breacher Baseball and the Bottle Breacher Bobber, you know, and that we're venturing out of this military niche a little bit. You know, we're going into people that love to drink beer and watch baseball and also people that love to fish. 
and drink beer. You know, so it's one of those things where it's really tough for entrepreneurs and Shark Tank companies to continue to stay legitimate, come out with fresh content and keep moving forward. But we've been able to do that. Yeah. I particularly like the, what you have the barbecue breaching tools on your website. Look, oh yeah. They, they, yeah. Those look, those look legit. <laughs> yeah. We're selling a lot of those for Father's Day right now. And we actually have a design patent issued on those. And that's another thing too, that it's a real struggle when you go on that show. It's a double-edged sword because it's really great because you got a lot of exposure. The downside to a lot of exposure is that now everybody and their brother is trying to copy what you're doing. Yeah. And we see that happen all the time. And we have to send out quite a few cease and desist letters for people that are, you know, trying to rip off what, you know, what we're doing and what we have intellectual property for. So did y'all have any patents beforehand or you decided that afterwards that we need to start doing that right away? Because I know he's a big patent guy. No, we had a design patent and a utility, not a utility at that point, but we'd have a design patent. Now we have a design and a utility patent issued on the bottle breacher. And I think we have eight other patents that have been issued to us. Okay. Well, I really commend you, at least in the beginning, also just bringing this up as far as people don't really talk about a lot of the negatives with the entrepreneurship and all the obstacles that you have to overcome. But how about some of those things that you've been proud about what you've been able to do so far? Right. Something that we're really proud of here is our our mission. You know, for us, there's a mission that's a lot more than just bottom line and providing for the people and the team that works here. We work a lot with a lot of veteran nonprofits. I noticed as I was getting out of the Navy how difficult it is to assimilate and to take that step into the private sector where a lot of people don't understand. A lot of CEOs, managers, and HR folks that are making decisions on who to hire, a lot of them struggle to understand the added value of hiring a veteran. And so we work closely with a lot of nonprofits that are helping veterans. Several of our products have proceeds attached to them that go directly to nonprofits. I can't even count them all. And, you know, it's really important for us to have a mission and to raise awareness about veteran issues and also to support veteran nonprofits. So we're really proud of that. We're also really proud of being made in the USA brand. I mean, honestly, when I was younger, I really didn't care where stuff was made that I was buying and purchasing as long as it was quality. And now that I've taken on the responsibility of being in the uh, made in the USA brand, I know firsthand how difficult it is and I know how much more expensive it is. And so I'm really proud of that because we've been offered opportunities to take our manufacturing overseas on a couple different occasions. And, you know, when you look at the numbers just by themselves, I mean, it's a really attractive, you know, it's a really attractive solution, but we're never going to do it as long as I'm the CEO of this company. And I'm really proud because I know that we employ a lot of Americans right here in Tucson, Arizona, a lot of people that need jobs. And I also know that we stimulate, you know, the economy by pumping millions of dollars a year back into the U.S. economy. So that makes me really proud because I realize that a lot of veterans, one of the reasons they struggle when they get out is because they lose that sense of purpose or mission or some, doing something that's bigger than themselves. And in a way, I found that being a made in the USA company, you know, supporting veteran nonprofits, it's a way for me to continue to serve. Well, how about your transition as far as what your day-to-day was like beforehand when you're in the garage and what you had to learn as far as what, what you have to do now and how that's changed over time? Right. So it's changed a lot in the day-to-day operation from me doing a lot more hands-on in, you know, production myself. I did a lot of engraving, polishing, packaging, post office runs, you name it. I was ready to hustle and ready to grind as long as I needed to. And I still jump in there and help polish and package and do whatever needs to be done. And now my day-to-day job is more along the lines of promoting the company, coming up with new products and making sure that this company continues to grow six months, nine months, 18 months from now. And it's really tough to do that when you get front site focused 
focus and you get tied up in, you know, making the products itself, it's really tough to grow and promote your business. So it's, it's a little bit different now, but I firmly believe and I hope I always have the attitude of just staying hungry because once you round that corner as an entrepreneur and you become successful, one of the biggest enemies is complacency. I think, you know, just because we've made it, we're there, we've arrived. I can take a wrap off and slow down a little bit and relax. And to an extent, you can probably take a tiny wrap off, but you better stay hungry. You better keep pushing forward and you better keep grinding because somebody will take it from you. So what's your work like balance today, comparatively, since I guess you like said doing Shark Tank and the stuff in the beginning? Well, I always make sure that I have time for my family. So I usually uh, get to work around 8.30 and then I'm usually out of the door about 4.30 so I can go home and hang out with my girls and have dinner with them and, you know, help put them to bed and read them books and stuff like that. But any entrepreneur will tell you that just because you're not at work doesn't mean you're not working. I mean, the first thing I do every morning, as every entrepreneur does, is I pick my phone up, I check social media, check my emails, make sure that we're moving forward. There's no fires to put out. So, you know, I would say I've got a pretty healthy work-life balance. I think some people would look at my life and not want it, you know, for anything just because they understand how busy we are. And, you know, there's never, as an entrepreneur, it's 24-7 and it's you can be called away at any time to deal with any different thing. But for me, I kind of need that challenge. I need to be I need to be pushed harder than most people or I just lose interest in what's going on. So I, I'm really happy about where we're at. I think my wife would like to slow down a little bit. Right. And I'm hoping that as we bring on more and more key team members, she can she can slowly delegate and give away some of her responsibilities abilities, but I'm pretty happy about where we're at. So she still works there full time? Oh, yeah. You know, she still handles marketing. She runs marketing and accounting for Bottle Breacher. So she's definitely busy. Gotcha. And from that role and where you are today, what have you learned that you didn't know in starting the company, either, like I said, on the personal side or just the business side? I've learned a lot of things. Yeah. I've learned how difficult it is to work with your spouse, that's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, we joke about it a lot, but it, you know, it's one of, the, I think, one of the most difficult things you can do. And I also think that if you're able to do it and you learn how to do it, it'll make your relationship stronger. But I think it's important that people, because I meet people all the time that are thinking about starting a business with their significant other, their spouse or their girlfriend or their boyfriend. And, you know, it's one of those things where you need to make sure that you're ready for it. You need to make sure you're, you wade in with caution and you need to make sure that you do your best to stay in your swim lane and not dominate you know, your other half. And so it's a really complicated thing to do, but I find that couples that have done it are usually, it usually brings them closer together just because they've had to trust each other so much and rely on each other so much more. Yeah. Could you talk about that strain? Like for people who are talking or thinking about doing businesses with their significant other, like if there's any tips that you've had or things that helped you overcome, let's just say where you didn't leave the business at at work and you might be fighting at home and it's all because you just, you never have any separation or what what you learned and what's helped you with that. Right. Well, like I said, I can speak for us mm-hmm. specifically. I, right. you know, I'm not going to say that our method works for everybody, but in another business that I was a partner in, and also in the military, how important a chain of command is. Because if you don't have one person at the top making decisions, and if there's two equal partners that you know both have equal say, it can get really dicey. And and more importantly, a lot of times things just never get done because if the two parties can never agree on, you know, hey, this is this is the direction that we're going to go, 
then a lot of times, like I said, you'll have issues and problems that never get solved because there's never an agreement. So I think it's important to, and I don't care who it is, mm. one party needs to step up and be the final say, be the CEO, take leadership. Because, you know, like I said, the last business I was a part of, we had seven equal partners and it was a mess. I mean, it rarely did a decision get made because nobody could ever agree upon anything. And it's just, it can be not as bad as that situation, but it can be equally difficult with two people that are equally in charge. So I think it's important, one, that you establish, you know, kind of a hierarchy on, hey, when it comes down to it, I'm going to be the final say, I'm going to be the CEO. I also, in that structure, though, I think it's important that, you know, like I said earlier, that both parties stay in their swim lanes. Like with me and Jen, we've learned that, hey, when it comes to accounting and marketing, Jen runs those departments. Now, she will ask me at times, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Or which direction do you want to ultimately go? But I try not to to get into her swim lane and mess around with what she's got going on. And it just takes a lot of trust. And it, it takes a lot of not micromanaging, you know, your partner. And so when it comes to new product development, you know, manufacturing, running daily operation, and what direction that we're going to go as a company, and we're, we're going to reinvest our capital, that's kind of my swim lane. So now that doesn't mean we always agree, or that doesn't mean that she can't jump in and weigh in on what she thinks is, you know, the best course of action because she definitely does. And I definitely hear what she's saying. But I do think it's important that, you know, there's a clear defined leader if you're going to work with your spouse or your partner yeah. and, and that both parties respect that so that you can actually move forward and decisions can be made. Yeah. Or I guess, yeah, any, even if your partner was your best friend in a, in a business that if you have two exactly. guys who are normal, who are from one side, you got to go ahead and say, hey, you're dealing with that. I'm dealing with this. So no, I think yep. it's great. So I guess kind of tailing off with the interview, as far as any other advice and lessons, like I said, I appreciate you bringing up all everything you've done so far. Is it any last words of wisdom for people thinking about starting their business or already have? Yeah, I think Mark Cuban is one of my partners now. And before he was my partner, I read his, his short little book and I picked up a lot of gold in that book. One of the things he said in that book is follow the green, not the dream. And I think that's so important to understand as an entrepreneur, because a lot of the times we'll get so hell bent and rigid on, hey, this is my idea. This is what I'm going to run with. I'm going to make this happen. And a lot of times you'll see that same person or that same business just trudging through, you know, something that's not working out for seven, eight years. It never materializes into anything. And though I will applaud that person for being resilient and being consistent, I don't think it's the smartest way to do it. I think as a real entrepreneur, I don't care if the green or the moneymaker ends up being you selling curly straws or sombreros. You need to follow the green, not the dream. Okay. And if, as you do that and you get better at it and you start following the green, you're going to learn so many lessons that you'll be able to, at some point, go back to the dream, whether you want to open up a boutique, a hair salon or whatever it is, and you'll be able to take the lessons learned and probably the capital that you've saved up and do that one day. But I think it's important as an entrepreneur to understand if you're not making money, you're not going to be in business at all, period. So you need to follow the green and not the dream. And, and then the last thing I want to share with your audience is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand this one simple concept. And that's that 30% of something is worth more than 100% of nothing. And keep that in the back of your head as you're starting your company up. And a lot of entrepreneurs make this mistake. They're so con controlling and selfish that they'll never give away anything with their company. They'll never give away shares or equity or anything like that. And what they'll end up doing is they'll end up owning 100% of nothing. And I think it's important that a lot of your entrepreneurs think about it and do some research. There have been a lot 
of people that have owned only a couple percentage points of a, of a company. And when that company exited or sold, they ended up becoming instant millionaires because of it. And so a lot of times you're going to start with the 100 percentage of equity. And if you're able to chop off 10 percent of your equity to bring in this key person or to bring in this capital investment, it's going to get you up and rolling. And then you're able to you know shave off another 10 percent to bring on this key person or that key person. Even if you only wind up you know with barely controlling your company at 51 percent, or even if you get further down the line and you still only own 30 percent, but your company's growing and you're building a successful, profitable business, it's worth a lot more than 100% of nothing. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be creative and use your equity and think outside the box. And whatever you do, do not be a control freak because like I said, you'll probably end up owning 100% of nothing. I belong to this international organization and you get once a month meeting, we all get together. And I've gotten frustrated because I go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything. And we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month, and it's hard to justify, you know? Uh, honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. <laughs> I think those are great two things of advice because I hear that too much where you own 100% of the company and you're scared to bring anyone on. And there's a lot of failure stories that people don't talk about dealing with that. But all right, well, like you said, thank you for all the advice and lessons you have brought us today. As far as your future, where do you see your company growing and you personally here in the next few years or even further out? Right. Well, I think we're going to continue doing what we're doing. I think we're going to continue to come out with new high quality gift products. I think we're going to continue to bring on more manufacturing and more jobs. And we're going to do a lot more in-house just because I love being able to do stuff in-house for many different reasons. And I think personally, I'm actually getting ready to be a contributor for Entrepreneur Magazine. So you might see me in Entrepreneur Magazine a little bit, and I'm actually starting to write a book. So I'm really looking forward to taking the lessons that I've learned over my lifetime and possibly helping, helping some other people through some of the stuff they're walking through. So I'm really excited about the future. All right, great. Well, uh, like I said, we'll look forward to it. And if people want to say thanks for coming on, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, if, if people want to reach out to me, they can email my assistant, amy at bottlebreacher.com. That's A-M-E-E at bottlebreacher.com. And she'll be happy to relay those messages to me. All right. Well, awesome. Well, like I said, Eli, well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. All right, Austin. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Hope you're enjoying our podcast episodes so far. We're interviewing these entrepreneurs to help inspire you and other listeners to build and grow your businesses. So if you like the podcast and know someone else who could benefit from listening, then please pass it on. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. Without you guys and gals, we wouldn't be here. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com to become a Patreon member today. That's austinsbigp.com. Oh, and by the way, Austin's Big P, that stands for Austin's Big Podcast. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com. Dot com.